Welcome to A Church in the City, a podcast sharing messages, sermons, and talks from downtown Christian Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We exist to empower a movement of passionate Jesus followers. We hope that this word can encourage you and strengthen your relationship with God. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning to everybody here and to everybody there, wherever everybody is. Get my get my sea legs. You know, about a year ago to this day, I gave a message about hope that initiated the DCC's 2020 Advent season. And a lot of the folks at home at that time would have said that the atmosphere in our country was seriously lacking in hope. In fact, I think I had the honor that day because all the rest of the DCC preaching team was in quarantine, if I remember. So they're not today, so praise God. In fact, most of them are here. I seriously just considered giving that same message over again, see if anybody was paying attention, but... But that, you know, that would have been inappropriate because as we see our faithful God bestowing fresh mercies every morning, as Jeremiah reminds us in Lamentations 3.23, so our hope should be refreshed every morning. And if, if we, as we said in last year's, last year's message, if faith actually shapes our hope, then again, continuing, the continuing faithfulness of our God should be constantly and increasingly reinforcing the structure that defines our hope. That said, I will recycle the, the introduction to last year's message because it continues to be pertinent as we step into the Advent season here. Today is the first Sunday of the Advent season, the season during which we prepare our hearts for the coming of the King. Now, a lot of faith families the world over traditionally celebrate the Advent season leading with the, over the course of the four Sundays leading up to Christmas with the actual commemoration of the Incarnation on Christmas Day being the capstone of that celebration. So for these four Sundays and the days in between, we find ourselves in solidarity with much of the universal Christian church. Traditionally, there's a theme for each of those Sundays. And while those themes may differ slightly from church to church, they are generally, and in this order, hope, love, joy, and peace. There are even traditional liturgical colors, candles for each week. So, for example, if you're at home today, and if you're wearing purple pajamas, you're dressed perfectly, because purple symbolizes preparation on this, the first Sunday in Advent. However, if you're here in the Kindle room wearing purple pajamas, that would just be weird. That would be weird. But it's okay. We try not to judge here. You can't, however, miss the brand new purple vest that I'm sporting today, handmade by Barbara, just for the occasion, because I was not about to wear a purple robe to church. So, anyway, our celebration of Advent is about anticipation, anticipation of the coming of the King, King Jesus. And it has at least three faces. One is about incarnation, our celebration of the renewal of this world with the birth of the King at Christmas. The Son of God, setting aside his elevated position 
and its privileges in stepping into human history as a man on a rescue mission. Ultimately, by his death and resurrection, initiating a new covenant between God and mankind. The word, logos, becoming flesh, fulfilling the purposes of the triune God, which is really what logos means. When used in reference to the Son of God, it is the revealed expression of the heart and mind of God, his purposes and his plans. The second faith is about the rebirth and renewal of the individual as the king takes his proper place in that person's heart. And when that person takes their place in that covenantal relationship, which is what God's heart is all about. And lastly, it's about the return of the king as he comes back in glory to subdue his enemy, to claim his kingdom, and to take his bride home to live with his father in his father's house in the boundless realm forever. All that to say that the theme of the first Sunday of Advent, that's today, is hope. And hey, it's already in all the Christmas songs, right? The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, O little town of Bethlehem. Or a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. From O Holy Night, one of my favorite Christmas songs. Anybody here ever have a hope chest? They may be a, a, a bit out of fashion, but some still use them. You can buy them on Amazon for as much as $1,000. Or you can have your brother make you one in his high school woodshop class. I think that's what you did, didn't you, years ago? Typically, they were used by young women as receptacles to collect items they would bring into their anticipated marriage. Clothing, linens, towels, jewelry, photos household items, dishes, works of art, special keepsakes. It's an interesting metaphor, though, because the believer also anticipates a marriage. The believer is part of the bride of Christ and will bring certain things into that marriage. Perhaps the faith that has sustained him through trouble and tribulation. Perhaps the love that she feels for her Savior and for her spiritual brothers and sisters. Or perhaps the hope that's been a lifelong mainstay, Christian hope. So what is this distinctively Christian hope? What's it all about? Well, let's ask some questions from the biblical perspective after we take a drink. Do we think that Adam and Eve could have had any sort of worthwhile life? after being expelled from that beautiful garden and driven into a life of toil and trouble and heartache and pain and suffering if they weren't able to pin their hopes on the promises of God, the promise God made in Genesis 3.15 that he would put enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman and that though the offspring of the serpent might bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the woman would eventually crush the serpent's head. There's an assurance there that the offspring of the woman would be victorious over the offspring of the enemy, the serpent. And I'm sure that was cause for hope for Adam and Eve. Or do we think that Abraham could have endured the uncertainty and the, and the challenges that he experienced if he did not hang his hopes on the promises God gave him in Genesis chapter 12 and again in Genesis chapter 15, that God would make him into a great nation through his very own son, 
the son of the promise. And that through that son, all the peoples of the world would be blessed. Do we think that Joseph, in Genesis chapter 40, could have held his faith strong after being betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, unjustly accused and imprisoned in Egypt, and then gone on to rescue an entire region during an unprecedented widespread famine? What about Moses? What about Joshua, Gideon, Samson, Esther, King David? What about the Old Testament prophets? They all had their hopes invested in the promises of God. What about Job, who in chapter 13, verse 15, could say, even though he may slay me, still will I put my hope in him. Wow. How did they get through their complicated, dangerous lives, if not because their faith, excuse me, their hope, was shaped by a faith which was defined by the faithfulness of God? Or are you of the opinion that all this Old Testament stuff is just a bunch of fictional, inspirational stories? Well, fully. These are your spiritual ancestors. These are the physical ancestors of Jesus himself. Is that a dirty word, fully? Oh, I didn't think so. Maybe it's Greek. Anyway, hey, these are the people that laid the very foundation for Christian hope. These are the people who who had their own spiritual hope chests. If you didn't have your hopes pinned on that, why would you even be here? You'd probably be home sleeping in, and you probably wouldn't be wearing purple PJs. So what about the New Testament? Well, it starts out in the Gospels. The Greek word for hope, help us, isn't used much in the Gospels. But I think we see it in action. We see one disciple after the other, walking away from career and family, and throwing their allegiance in with Jesus. We see individuals calling him Lord and Messiah. We see huge crowds following him and hanging on every word. Why would they do that? It may have been more than just the miracles Jesus performed. Perhaps the Holy Spirit kindled hope in their hearts by giving them, and perhaps us, a glimpse that this is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the ancient promises. I don't know. Likely none of them knew either. They just knew that there was something in Jesus, something not yet seen or revealed, but something they could put their hope in. Christian hope is not some wishy-washy daydream or a yearning for something. It's not some ambiguous optimism. It's an assurance. It's an expectation. It's based on the promises of the one who doesn't break his promises. It's not like a wish for good weather when you go on vacation or maybe for a cost of living raise next year. Those are things you hope for without any certainty that they will ever come to pass. What we're talking about today, the first Sunday of Advent, the first Sunday of a period of preparation for the coming of the bridegroom, our king, what we're talking about today is what we put our hope in. Those things that we wish for are generally dependent on influences outside our control. Influences that are often undependable, unstable, maybe unrealistic, unreliable, sometimes even unpredictable, sometimes even malicious. That which we hope in is different. We're talking about God, his character, his track record, his demonstrated purposes, plans, and promises, his faithfulness, 
Those are dependable, unchanging, reliable, driven not by whimsy or, or meanness, but by goodness, by kindness, by unconditional love and mercy. I've seen it in my life. I'm sure many of you have too. We're talking on one hand about a world and lives tossed to and fro by circumstances and randomness and hopelessness versus a world not controlled perhaps, but certainly designed for our good, for abundant joy, and where there's one surrounding and covering it who makes all things work together for good, for those who love him and are called together for his purpose. Romans 8, 28. By the way, that's the definition of a church. A group of people called together for a purpose. It's a world where we have expectations that we can put our hope in. So what is it that makes Christian hope certain? Well, it's about confidence. It's about confidence that the essence of our hope is faith in God's goodness and grace as the foundation of his intentions and his actions. We can't screw it up or overturn it because we have nothing to do with it. It's initiated and applied unilaterally by God himself. Without trust in God's goodness and faithfulness, we can have no real hope. That would leave us trusting in our own strength and our own wisdom to successfully navigate a world characterized by randomness, chance, uncertainty, and relativism. Without absolutes, how can there be any firm foundation? It'd be like trying to hit a moving target. So sorry for those who do that. You know, the Greek word that we find in the New Testament translated as sin, hamartia, is about missing the mark. Did you know that God has a target that we're supposed to be aiming our lives toward? His name is Jesus. He doesn't move or jump around or duck. He stands still in range with his arms stretched wide saying, hit me with your best shot. He makes it possible by the leading of his Holy Spirit for us to get the mark. And that is comforting. For the sake of what I'm trying to say today, I would submit that the term hope is very closely connected to the term comfort. In some senses, they're, they're synonymous almost. Or at least we can say that comfort may be one of the byproducts of hope. And if you can grant me that, then I can reword the first question in the catechism that I learned in my youth to say, what is your only hope in life and in death? And the answer would be that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair could fall from his head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now make room for that in your hope chest. And if you think that's just some man-made catechism, I can give you a scripture reference for every one of those statements. Or another of those catechism questions that asked in the section exploring the Apostles' Creed, what hope? do you receive from the promise of resurrection of the body? And the answer 
but not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head, but also this, my broken, screwed up body will be raised by the power of Christ and it will be reunited with my soul and made like the glorious body of Christ. That's another hope. And there's scripture to back that up too. And in that same vein, one more, one more question from the creed. What hope do you receive from the promise of life everlasting? And the answer, that inasmuch as I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess complete blessedness, such as eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man, therein to praise God forever. Now there's some keepsakes for your hope chest. New Testament references to Christian hope really get thick with the Apostle Paul. In fact, I think he should be renamed the Apostle of Hope. He says so much about it. He says in Romans 8.24 that we have been saved in hope. But hope that is seen isn't hope. For who hopes for something he already sees? So there's another element to Christian hope. It's about a confidence in the substance and the reality of things we haven't even seen yet. In Galatians 5.5, Paul talks about the believer waiting for the hope of righteousness. Here he means that we're waiting for the full realization of the inheritance that we receive based upon God's declaration that we are heirs with Jesus because we are made righteous in Christ. I read an article online, and I, I like what the author said about Christian hope. He says that hope is integrally linked to the dimension of time. It's a present perspective based upon a future expectation. And I would add that that future expectation is founded upon the promises of the past and God's record of faithfulness. The author notes that the Greek word elpidzo, which is a verb meaning to hope, was understood by first century Greeks to carry either good or bad expectations. Life could go either way. Even hope could go either way. And I'm not surprised because without having the absolutes that go along with belief in God, how can the world have any confidence that they could have only good expectations? As usual, however, Christianity sheds new meaning on many of the words used at that time in history, and El Pizzo is no exception. Paul's understanding of the term comes from a different perspective. He's basing it on the experience the perspective expressed in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament from centuries before Christ, where that word is used to translate Hebrew words, meaning to trust, to endure, to hope. Never neutral, never swinging either way. In the Old Testament, hope is always positive. Hope also plays an important role in the Apostle Paul's understanding of the end of the age. He referred to Christ's return as the blessed hope, in Titus 2.13, creation and believers will be gloriously transformed when Christ appears. Paul stated that the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons and daughters of God, that's us, in the hope that it also will be set free from the bondage of corruption. Romans 8, verse 20. And this, of course, refers to the removal of the curse placed upon creation itself following the sin of Adam that we read about in Genesis 3. In Romans 5.5, 5, Paul says that hope does not disappoint 
because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. There's that certainty that we've been talking about because we know the love of God is certain. The love of God is communicated to us by that Spirit. In context, in chapter 5 of Romans, Paul explains that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Because of that, we stand in his grace. By the way, note that we stand in grace. It's like standing in a puddle, or it's like being enveloped in a cloud. It's not a something. It's a somewhere. It's where we now live. We live in his grace. It's part of our address. It's like in Christ. And we rejoice looking forward to the unveiling of his glory, he says in the next verse. He says that as we look forward in hope and anticipation, we can even rejoice in our tribulations and what they accomplish in our lives. Paul lays out the progression of results from the difficulties we encounter. He says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Encountering hardship strengthens us and can enable us to withstand even more. He says, hope does not disappoint, or hope does not put us to shame. David says the same thing in Psalm, Psalm 25. There's an old Graham Kendrick song we used to sing uh, in, a, in a previous church life. It used to be one of my favorites about not being put to shame. That kind of hope is certain because it relies on God's power, God's love, his promise, his sacrifice, not our own merits. That kind of hope is certain because of what he has accomplished, not because of any work on our part. Because Christ died for us, we have been justified, and we will be delivered from the future wrath of God. We were not saved based on our own righteousness. Rather, we were reconciled. That is, we were given peace with God, even while we were still enemies with God. And so we are saved by his life. Read Romans chapter 5 on your own. It is powerful stuff. Paul says the only hope that bears fruit is the hope that is in Christ. That sounds a little bit like John 15, Jesus' vine analogy. And the fruit it bears is the fruit of righteousness. Colossians 1 verse 3. When one has the hope of righteousness, he has hope indeed. Because he no longer needs to fear the wrath of God, but instead can move forward in hope to serve God gladly. Just like it says in those catechism questions. It is the hope of righteousness that makes me suggest that another synonym for hope is Jesus. He is our hope. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.10, this is the reason we toil and strive, because we have hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. When we pit the randomness, the chance, the purposelessness that prevails in our world today versus the words of Paul in many of his letters, and especially in Romans 5 and Romans 8, there's no question as to which perspective I'd prefer. I think I suggested earlier that the difference between the world's hopes and the Christian's hope is the degree to which what they are founded upon is certain or not certain. Actually, I've always thought it sad that the only two things the world says you can count on are death and taxes. And I'm sure that's supposed to be a joke, but you know what? It's really not funny. Because 
a great deal of the world believes that. That's the only thing they think is sure. So does the world have anything other than death? Which they are deeply afraid of, by the way. Anything that they could say is solid, unshakable, dependable. Whereas death, interestingly, is a key aspect of the Christian's hope. We all hear stories about do-gooders, random acts of kindness, people paying it forward, people helping the helpless. And I can't read these people's hearts, but I suspect that even though some of them may not be believers, they might not bother doing good unless they had an inkling that there was something out there bigger and better than all this, something they could actually put their hope in. At the same time, this is going to sound weird, but at the same time there's actually a philosophy out there that says losing all hope can bring freedom. Like hope is the shackle that ties you down. Well, there's another bunch of hooey or fooey. It is truth that sets you free, not losing hope. And again, it's all about the foundation of your hope. Truth is an absolute. If it's not, it's not truth. If you've lost all hope, you've lost sight of any firm foundation. And if you think that losing hope can set you free, it can only be that you've got your hope invested in something totally unreliable and totally relative. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul discusses spiritual gifts and ministries. He ends that passage by encouraging his readers to desire the greater gifts. And he says that he'll explain what that means. He says, now, three things remain. Hope, faith, and love. It's a little bit difficult to sort this out. At least it is for me, but we're going to give it a try. The gifts and ministries and ways of serving that Paul lists are endowments on believers for the building up of the church and its members. Paul speaks of three greater things that will remain. At the same time, he says there are lesser gifts that will pass away. He suggests that they're partial. They're not the complete deal. They're glimpses of the real thing, down payments, so to speak. And a time will come when the church will no longer need edification because it will be complete. It will be perfect when the bridegroom comes to take his bride home. So those things like prophecy, tongues, and the like will end and pass away when the bride is perfected and when Christ comes to take us home. Not yet, but someday. But in the meantime, three things remain. Three things will endure. And I think those are the things that we've held on to, like items in our hope chest. They are what has made it possible for us to persevere, to endure, as we waited for the bridegroom to return for us. Faith, hope, and love. And yet, so many around us have none of those blessings. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a parable about ten maidens waiting for the return of the bridegroom. Their job is to welcome him and to light his way with their lamps, which require oil to burn. Some have oil in reserve. Others have not prepared, as we are doing in Advent. And they've depleted their reserves of oil. I submit to you that that oil in question in that story is hope. They gave up hope, waiting. They put nothing into their hope chests, and they missed the coming of the bridegroom. 
Can the worship team come back up? I would submit to you that becoming salt and light in this dark and tasteless world is all about you, all of us. Being hope in Jesus' name. You can personify hope by being Jesus as you go into all the world as his disciples. The incarnation, the word become flesh and dwelling among us. God meeting man here, right here where he lives, on his own initiative, demonstrating the length and the breadth, the depth and the height of his love for the world, offering rescue, reconciliation, and restoration. That's the greatest cause for hope this weary world has ever seen. But hey, listen, you are the next iteration of that hope. You are the next step. You're the next generation. Christ passed that baton onto you and me, to his church. People say, I don't really know what my calling is. What's my purpose? Really? Your purpose? The calling for each and every believer is the same. It's simply to carry on the incarnation and the hope that it brings with it. You might do it as a business owner. You might do it as a porter on a factory floor. You might do it as a homemaker or as a student. You might do it as a retired grandparent. Those aren't your callings. Those are simply the pathways that your God has opened up before you as ways to walk out your calling. Now it's your job to bring that thrill of hope to a weary and waiting world. Get busy. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about DCC, get involved in one of our ministries, or give to support us, you can find us at achurchinthecity.org. You can also follow us on Instagram at Downtown Christian Church for Sunday morning set lists, sermon series announcements, and much more. You can also join us live on YouTube every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. Just search for Downtown Christian Church. Thank you for listening.